So when you think about the traits that make a good leader, what comes to mind? Or or to ask this in a little bit different way, what traits do you value in a leader? So I I love reading about leadership. Uh, I love reading books and articles about leadership. And so I spent this past week just kind of surveying some of the resources that I have to identify what experts claim are the traits of a good leader. Here are some of the things that they list. Positive, passionate, personable, decisive, good communicators, patient, humble, collaborative, visionary, courageous, flexible, empathetic, innovative, and ethical. That's a pretty good list. And what's interesting is that in many ways this list mirrors some of what we just heard Steve read in 1 Timothy 3. I mean, imagine that. The Word of God actually knows what it's talking about. And we, when we think about good leadership, we, we resonate with that. I mean, every two to four years, we, our, our country goes crazy about voting in good leaders because we put so much hope in good leaders. And we want good leaders over us. I mean, how many of us can point to a parent or a coach or a teacher or, or someone, maybe a boss, someone who invested in us, a leader over us under whom we thrived? And at the same time, we can also be suspicious of leaders. Like we wear our cynicism about corrupt political leaders or corrupt greedy CEOs or a terrible coach of our favorite sports team. We wear cynicism about those guys almost as a badge of honor. And many of us in here, we carry the scars of bad leadership. And we've had parents who sadly neglected or mistreated us. We've had bosses or managers who made our jobs difficult. We have had teachers who called us stupid. We've maybe had pastors who heaped condemnation on us and manipulated us. And so when you think of leadership and someone starts talking about leadership and maybe even submitting to leaders, you get a little itchy because you know how leaders have abused you and used you and you're scared to do that. And I would even wonder if some of you that don't profess faith in Christ this morning. You're here, but maybe one of the reasons why you struggle believing in Jesus is because you've seen the way pastors have abused authority. And so I understand this. Like, look, sometimes we can just be flat out rebellious against leadership. Like, in our pride, we don't want to be led, and we just rebel against anybody who is over us. But I think most of us struggle more in this way. We've been hurt by leaders, and so it's hard to submit to them. And so our issues aren't that we're just straight up prideful and rebellious, it's that we're scared. Like we recognize the good of leadership and we want to be under good leaders, but we've, we've gone down that road before and we've been hurt and so we're a little bit skittish. And look, the Bible is utterly realistic about the power leaders have, which is why the primary focus and emphasis of 1 Timothy 3 has to do with godly character. God understands the implications of character in a leader, and that's why the emphasis for us this morning is on that. And so God has ordered his church with leaders called to build a healthy church. Like, we need leaders. God has called people to lead. We must have healthy leaders to have a healthy church. And so the next two weeks, I want to talk about some of the aspects of leadership. So this morning, we're going to focus on pastors and elders. Next week, we're going to look at deacons and uh, other roles in the church. And so here's our point for us this morning. Here's kind of the main takeaway. A healthy church is led by godly pastors. A healthy church is led by godly pastors. And so here are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. First, we're going to look at the task of a pastor. So what do pastors do? 
Then we're going to spend time looking at the qualifications of a pastor. And then we're going to look, like, look at what it means to follow pastors. But before we jump in, let me just say a couple things. First, First City Church, if you belong to this church, we all need to own this. And we all need to care about the culture of leadership in our church. This isn't just for Paul and I, or Paul and the deacons, or Paul and I and the gospel community leaders. It's for all of us to care about this and own this. And, and let me address it this way. Ladies, while, like we looked at last week, that men, God calls men to serve as elders in the church, you are a necessary ally in this. You play a vital role in this. We need your voice we need your wisdom. We need you speaking into the lives of men. We need you discipling us. We need you caring for us, encouraging us, correcting and challenging us. You play a vital role, women, in the development of men and leaders in this church, and so you should care about these things. And for the men in the church, like I'm under no illusion that God is going to call all of you to be pastors. I mean, it'd be kind of cool, like every man in the church is a pastor. It'd be a little weird, but hey, I know that that's not necessarily God's calling on every one of your lives, but the things listed here in 1 Timothy are just the character of any godly man. You should want this whether God calls you to be a pastor or not, and so you should care about this. Because godly men affect the church in tremendous ways, and so men, we should care about being godly. We should aspire to be godly so our families may thrive, so the church may thrive, and the mission of God goes forward. But at the same time, I want to call some of you out and say, hey, you should aspire to be a pastor. Like, I want men in this church to desire spiritual leadership and to be pastors. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the church is a little bit too big right now for just two pastors. Like, I'm not complaining here. I love serving as your pastor. But understand, just two of us, just Paul and I, it's hard. I mean, we're growing, praise God, and we're in need of more godly men to take on the load. And so I want to call some of you out to say, hey, you need to aspire to be a pastor. You need to aspire to step into leadership in this way. And some of you, maybe you're, it, that, that time will be short. Maybe that, that's coming down the pike. Some of you, it may be years down the road, but aspire now. Care about these things now. And so with that said, that kind of as my introduction, let's talk about the task of a pastor. What do pastors do? What are they called to do in the church? Well, verse 1 states that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So very quickly, the Bible establishes the office of a pastor. This is an official leadership role in the church. This isn't a man-made role. Like some people want to argue that a pastor is not biblical. Yes, it is. So there's an office, there is a role. And in scripture, you see overseer, which we see here, and elder kind of used interchangeably. Paul uses them interchangeably in 1 Timothy, uses them interchangeably in Titus. So same office, same role. And then it also says that whoever aspires to be a pastor desires a noble task. This is a good task. This is something you should want to aspire to. There's nobility in it. It's a good thing. And so what do pastors do? Well, first... Pastors oversee and lead the church. So in, implied in the word overseer is this role to lead the church, to oversee the church. In Titus 1.7, Paul calls pastors, calls elders, stewards. And so the role of a steward was a household manager. So a steward was a servant in a household, so under a master who was put in charge of the other servants in the house, put in charge of the family task, even put in charge of the finances, so all the operations of the household would run well. 
So those of you who are Downton Abbey fans and are mourning the loss of that show, think of Mr. Carson and Mr. Branson, stewards in the home. And so there's an incredible responsibility given to a steward. But here's an important piece of a steward. A steward is not the boss. A steward is under authority. So pastors, while they are given this responsibility of leadership in the church, are under the authority of Jesus. Like Jesus is the king of his church. Jesus is the lead pastor of his church. We serve under him, under his authority. But we are called to lead. We are called to see that the household runs well. We're called to see that all of the servants in the household of God are living into their role and they're thriving and they're growing and that the mission of God is going forward. So here's some of the ways that as pastors, Paul and I sort of oversee and lead and manage First City at this point. This is just kind of some categories to kind of help you see how this particular role gets played out. We're leading in the worship service, and so seeing that it is done biblically in an orderly fashion. This means overseeing the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's on us to set kind of ministry priorities and our philosophy of ministry, and so that it's clear and we're moving forward in those things. We lead and we manage church staff and deacons and gospel community leaders and ministry team leaders and everybody else who's kind of volunteering and serving in the church so that we effectively deploy and equip you. Part of our responsibility is to set a budget, make certain financial decisions, and then also leading you, the church members, through decision-making. And so we're, we're kind of, this is the overseeing, this is the manage, this represents the ways that we are to lead the church in this way. And do we not know that a well-ordered, well-run household is important. Like some of you, you grew up in a household that was chaos, and you know the damage that can do. So a household is meant to be run in order. And so it is important that the elders have this in mind, that the church is, that the, the way that the church is led is decent and in order. So overseeing and leading. Next, pastors teach and equip. So the task of a pastor also includes teaching and discipling. So there's an extraordinary amount of emphasis placed on the word of God on teaching. Above almost everything else, pastors are to teach God's word to God's people. One of the qualifications we read in 1 Timothy is the pastor needs to be able to teach. In 1 Timothy 4.13, this is what Paul tells Timothy. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. He's telling Timothy, hey, your priority needs to be to teach the people of God the word of God. And so pastors also know this, that only by the power of the Holy Spirit does anybody change. And so pastors are to be men, not only of the word, but also of prayer, as Acts 6 tells us. They're prayerfully teaching the word. They're prayerfully discipling the people of God. Pastors must be faithfully able to open the word of God, know the word of God, and then teach it to other people. So it's not just that I have a strong grasp myself, but I have to be able to communicate that to you as well and explain it in a way that is helpful and edifying to you. Because when God's, word, when God's people aren't fed on the word of God, they grow weak in their faith. As we saw last week, they, they become prone to deception. And so the people of God need the word of God so that they are mature and built up. And so know that Paul and I's hearts for you, we want the heart of anybody who would serve as a pastor at First City, is that you would know the word of God, that you would be mature in your understanding of the word of God, that you'd be mature in your minds, but not only that, you'd be worshipful in your hearts. Like your knowledge of God leads you to worship and love the Lord and love each other more and more. I want us to be able to stand and refute false teaching and bad theology and stand against temptation and deception. 
Now, connected with this teaching is also a discipling and equipping. So I don't just want to fill your heads with a bunch of knowledge. I want you equipped to do the ministry and carry forward the mission of God. This is what Ephesians 4.11 says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who's doing the work of the ministry? The saints. You all. It's not just Paul and I up here or Eric up here. It's not a spectator sport. Like ministry, the church, is not a spectator sport. It's participation. And so my job is to equip you guys to go and do the work of ministry. We're all doing this together. We all have a role to play. We're all part of the household. And we should want pastors, not who entertain us, not who are fun to watch, but whose impact on our lives causes us to more deeply love God, be more mature in our theology, and more skilled and effective in the work of ministry. You know those people that when you're around them, after you hung out with them, you can just feel like you take on the world? Like, that's how we want people to experience pastors. Because I'm engaging with my pastor, I feel more equipped, and I love Jesus more. I'm going to go out and do the work of ministry. I praise God for men who have served that role in my life. One of the reasons I'm even a pastor is because I had someone play that role in my life who got me off the bench and got me going. And every time I hung out with him, I feel like I'd take on the world. And that's how we want pastors to engage you all. That's the effect that we want to have, equipping you for ministry. Next they guard and protect the church. As Paul tells us in Titus 1.9, one of the reasons it's important that pastors are able to teach is because they have to be able to refute false teaching and bad theology. He writes this, he, meaning an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So important that pastors guard and protect the church because there are so many who want to come into the church and wreck it through false teaching. There are those voices outside the church trying to speak in, and there are those who will come into the church and try to wreck it from within. And pastors, when that danger comes, they can't go passive. They have to stand up to false teaching. They have to stand in the face of evil and those who would want to wreck the church and guard God's people. Finally, pastors are called to shepherd and counsel the church. More than any other metaphor, even more than teacher, pastors are called shepherds. That's the word pastor means, shepherd. They're called to shepherd and counsel and care for the people of God. This is what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God, that is among you, exercising oversight. So there you have all three. You have the elder, you have oversight, and you have shepherd. Kind of all the, the role of pastor encompassed there. So pastors work to apply God's truth to the sin and the brokenness and the suffering that God's people face. They teach and counsel and encourage and rebuke and exhort. And they do it with conviction, but they do it with love and grace and gentleness. Love this passage from 1 Thessalonians 5. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So no matter where someone is, if they're struggling with pride, whether they're weak in their faith, admonish them, encourage them, but be patient with them all. That's a call to pastors. It's a call to all of us, but it's a call to pastors in the way that we are to shepherd. Pastors want people to thrive. Like my goal is not so I can just beat you down and so you're just this submissive little person following me around. I want you to thrive in your faith. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to experience freedom. 
And so we're called to counsel and shepherd you in such a way that you experience those things. Yeah, that means sometimes I might have to get up in your grill. I might have to correct you and exhort you and challenge you. But I'm supposed to do this with a spirit of patience and love and grace. And that's what my heart desires is that we would have a culture of pastors that would do this for us. So these are the tasks of a pastor. Now let's look at the qualifications of pastors. The majority of this passage in 1 Timothy 3 is devoted to the qualifications and the character. This is what Paul writes. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So here, the picture that Paul writes here and paints for us is a, a emotionally and spiritually mature man who can relate well to other people. And this term above reproach is kind of this catch-all for every other characteristic that comes after. And above reproach means not open to attack or criticism. So the point here is that for a man to be qualified to be a pastor, there should be no second-guessing his character. Like men who are called to be pastors, men who live in that role of pastors, aren't men that we kind of go, hmm, I wonder about his character. I'm I'm a little bit doubtful. I'm a little unsure about his character. No, there to be men above reproach, men that everyone can say, yes, he is a man of godly character. As far as I know, he is a man of godly character. Here's what this means for us, men. We should not be living at the lowest common denominator. Like if we're looking at just, hey, how much can I get away with? How how close to sin can I get and not cross the line? And and I could go down a whole lot of roads. I don't want to come across legalistic this morning, but I mean, we could go into things like, hey, what's your entertainment intake? How much time are you spending in certain things? How much, where are you spending your money? All those things where we kind of just like, hey, I'm going to get as close as I can to sin without crossing the line. No. What Paul says here is men should aspire to be men who are above reproach. And so we look at that line and go, you know what? I'm not playing around with this. Like, I want my character to not be in question. And so men, as we think about aspiring to godly character, let's not run to how far and how close we can get to sin, but let's be men who live in godliness and aspire to godliness. From there, Paul first mentions that pastors are to be husbands of one wife, a one-woman man in the Greek. And so the underlying point is this, not that pastors have to be married, but they are to be sexually pure, and for those that are married, to be devoted to their wives. Pastors are to be men who care about the purity of their hearts and how they walk in sexual purity before the Lord. They are devoted to their wives alone sexually. And so let me, let me hit this at two different angles. First, our culture is pretty sensitive right now to the ways that men in power use that power to prey on women. I mean, it's all over our culture. And there's a good sensitivity. It's good. In some ways, the, the, the sin that has been buried for so long in our culture is coming to light, and this is a good thing. Because men should not use the power that they have to prey on women and use them for their own gratification. And praise God that in his word, he pushes on this point because men, if we're going to lead well, if we're going to be men who aspire to godliness, we need to treat women with respect and dignity and honor. Treat them as those who are made in the image of God, not things for our own gratification. 
And so for us to aspire to godliness means that the way we use our sexuality and the purity we have before the Lord is something that we cherish and we guard. And if we're married, that means we're devoted to our wives. And when it means devoted, it's not just, hey, you know, I don't cheat on her, I'm okay. No, you're devoted to her. You're pursuing her, you're loving her, you're cherishing her. So God's word comes strongly against those who would use their power to prey on women, prey on the vulnerable. But then it also offers this safeguard. Hey, let men who lead you be men who are sexually pure. Here's another angle to hit this at. When we consider that, according to polls done, that 80% of men admit, so this is only those that will admit, it's probably higher, 80% of men admit to looking at pornography, and close to 60% of pastors admit to struggling with pornography. Then we look at all of the pastors who, and leaders who have disqualified themselves because of adultery and sexual sin, and we see how important sexual purity is. And just thinking about this topic in this way, it breaks my heart because I know how many struggle with this. I mean, this is real. So many men struggle in darkness in this. And so for us to look at this and go at this head on is important because this is a real live situation. I mean, these numbers are probably much higher because who really is going to admit that they look at pornography? And so men, this is something we should care deeply about. This is something that we should, our hearts should break over the onslaught of sexual sin in our own hearts and in our churches and in our culture. Men, we should go to war against this. Like, I, I want us to say, this isn't something we mess around with. This isn't something we can just kind of flirt with on the edges and just kind of have this sense of like, oh, you know, I, it's not that big a deal. No, it is a big deal. And those of you that struggle with this, you know that. You know how pernicious this is. You know how the hooks get into your heart and it's hard to break free. So I want to, this, this is my hope, this is my prayer for the men of First City Church, is that we go to war with this together. Like there isn't a brother in here who is hiding in shame, but we shine the light of the gospel because there is hope and there's forgiveness and there is grace and there is mercy and there's transformation through Jesus Christ. And so if you are struggling with this, if this is you, if you are in the dark with this, find a brother, find a trusted leader and bring it into the light, shine the light of the gospel so you can be set free. And let's go to war. Let's wash each other's backs. Let's love each other in this. So we build a culture of men who are sexually pure in this church. And in many ways, Paul prohibiting drunkenness and talking about self-control is kind of connected to this idea of sexual sin because sexual sin is giving into lust. It's an inability to control bodily cravings and desires. And so it's using, using desire and pleasure in a destructive and selfish way. And so if you think about like drunkenness and other kinds of addiction, much the same thing. Drinking too much or using drugs or other forms to other things to alter our moods, even addiction to things like food and entertainment, these are all an inability to control bodily cravings. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul is concerned about how men use their bodies. And if we have an ability to control our bodily cravings, what this also often reveals when we, when we lose control of our bodily cravings is that we're probably trying to bury something. Like oftentimes there is a pain, there is a hurt, there's a stress. There's something going on that we can't deal with, and so we bury it. 
We bury it with food. We bury it with sex. We bury it with drugs and alcohol. And so to be self-controlled means that we have to have a sense of how our bodies are craving and desiring things and not letting those things take over. But it's not just bodily control that Paul has in mind here. To be self-controlled also means emotionally self-controlled. Like, man, it is good to show emotion. It is good to show emotion. Don't forget that. It is good to feel things. It is good to express emotion. But let me ask this question. Can you express emotion? Can you feel emotion without those emotions overtaking you? Without those emotions controlling you in a destructive way? So, for example... Anger is a good emotion to have. Like, you should get angry at things, men. You should get angry at evil and sin and oppression and injustice. You should get angry at things, the ways that the world is not right. But can you get angry and not be violent? Can you express anger? Can you show anger and not be violent? Can you enter into conflict? Can you enter into be able to confront and correct somebody without being quarrelsome? So it's one thing to to show emotion, to feel emotion. It's the other. Can you do it in a way that is godly and shows control? Let me flip this around, though. Because we often think lacking self-control is all about the hot end. Like, men who lack self-control are just men who get explosively angry. Men who outburst of emotion. But those of you that are controlled by fear and pity and doubt, so much so that you've gone passive in life, that is also a lack of self-control, emotionally, because you've allowed your emotions to shut you down. Your emotions are in control of you. You are not in control of them. And so passivity and and withdrawing, those are also a problem and show a lack of self-control. You may not burn hot, but you're not self-controlled. And guess what? You're also quarrelsome, because if you've ever met a passive man, a passive person, do they resolve conflict? Do, do, do their wives feel like, hey, yeah, they enter into conflict well and they resolve conflict? No, the conflict just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going. Your passivity perpetuates conflict. That's the definition of quarrelsome. And so we need to, we had to have a robust view of here of self-control. It hits both of us, both sides. And here's my fear, and, and just to press in here a little bit, men. For First City Church, I think the passivity is the bigger, tr- bigger struggle. Like, there's not a lot of you that I'm having to counsel and get up in your face because you're this type A, overbearing, anger, explosive dude. Most of you, it's your passive. You've allowed fear and doubt and self-pity and whatever else to shut you down. And so the emotions that you're facing, the emotion, the self-control that you need is to come out of that, to come out of passivity and lead your family, lead in the church. And so men, to walk in godliness To lead, we have to control our physical cravings. We cannot let them control us. And so let me ask this question. Men, how often do you tell yourself no? Like, can you tell yourself no to food, to to drink, to entertainment, to sexual desire? Not that these things are inherently bad, and I'm not saying abstain absolutely from these things. But if you can't say no to them without your body going out of whack, your emotions going out of whack, then they have control of you. You do not have control of your body. And similarly, emotionally, do you shut down or do you explode? Then you do not have control of your emotions. Men, how often when you don't feel like doing something, do you just say, I'm not going to do it? There again, your emotions have control of you. You do not have control of your emotions. 
How often do we run to things like food and sex and pleasure and drugs to numb the pain rather than taking that pain to Jesus? Because the only way we're going to exercise self-control in a godly way is that if we're taking whatever is broken inside of us, whatever we're trying to bury, taking it to Jesus and experiencing transformation from him. Because a lot of guys, this is what they'll hear. I need to be more self-controlled, so I'm going to become like this overbearing, legalistic, heavy-handed dude where I don't do anything. That's not the solution. That's not the gospel transforming you. That's you in your own effort trying to fix the problem. The gospel says take that pain, take whatever is going on inside your soul that's leading you to a lack of self-control to Jesus and allow him to transform you. And in that, submit your body to godliness. Submit your emotions to godliness. Paul also mentions that men are to be sober-minded. And this implies a wisdom, one who has sound biblical way of thinking. So in some ways, this is a a, a mental self-control. Men not given to shallow or even shallow thinking or every cool new idea thinking that it's the greatest thing. Sober-minded men exercise discernment and decision-making and they're able to see beyond the surface of things to deeper issues. And so to be sober-minded, we have to commit ourselves to developing biblical knowledge and categories and being prayerful for wisdom and discernment. And so this affects our bodies, emotion, and mind. And then from this kind of clump of characteristics, Paul then talks about men leading their families. Verses four and five. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, Or if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Here's Paul's point. Home is kind of the acid test, so to speak. Like, I can fake it up here every Sunday. I can fake it. I can fake it in gospel community. I can fake it in front of you all most of the time. I can't fake it at home. Like, who I really am comes out at home. Mindy knows who I really am. And if there's a disconnect between who I am up here and who I am in gospel community, who I am in front of all of you, and who I am at home, there's a problem. And so if I can't lead well at home, then I have no business leading well in the church because how I lead at home is how I will lead the church. If I lead at home with heavy-handedness, with anger, with a lack of self-control, with abuse, without wisdom, without being sober-minded, then I'm going to lead the church in the exact same way. Yeah, I can fake it for a while, but eventually that will come out and the church will be damaged. And so there is an important connection because the church is the family of God. The church is to be led like a family. We're not a business. We're not another organization where we can disconnect home life and leading. No, those things are supposed to be integrated. Those things are supposed to reflect one another. And so men, how you lead at home is a reflection of how you lead in the church And so if you want to lead in the church, start leading at home. And there's another aspect of this that I want to press on. See, men, what is the priority of your family? That your family can be happy and well cared for and you can love them and you can treat them with dignity and and the center of their life not be Jesus. That you can pursue all the good things of the American dream, so to speak, and the center of your family not be Jesus discipleship and mission, going to church, whatever, whatever spiritual aspects of your life can be something you just kind of tack on. Just another add-on, just another thing that I put on, not the center. You don't build your family around Jesus and the mission he has called you to, but you just add him on. 
And so dads, your kids can be successful at school and extracurricular activities. They can be well, well-behaved and care very little for Jesus. Have no heart for Jesus. Like your calendar can be filled with good things and none of it is causing your family to grow and thrive as disciples. And so can I put this a little starkly? Because men, hey, we can push on each other. Extracurricular activities, having your family do things that, that are going to develop your kids well, these are good things. I'm not, I'm not pressing it. It's not an either-or thing. But who cares how successful your kids are if they don't love Jesus? Like, who cares how good they do in school? Who cares how they are in sports or in band or whatever extracurricular activity and don't love Jesus? Your kid can gain the whole world and lose his or her soul. And let's not have a low bar here. Well, my kid's saved and that's good enough. I don't care if they have a shallow faith. As long as they're saved, that's good enough. Why are you setting the bar so low? Why do you not want your kids to thrive as disciples? Why don't you want them to love Jesus? Why aren't you building your family around the mission of God so your kids love Christ and want to give their lives to him? And so it's not just enough that your, ki- your family is happy on the surface. It's that your family is loving Jesus and growing as disciples of Jesus. Men, may our energy and our time and our sacrifice not be given for earthly comforts and pursuits. Because if that's how you lead your family, I guarantee that's how you will lead the church. May it be given so that our families and our churches thrive. And, and you can think of it this way. Men like that, you're probably pretty good at making business decisions. But when it comes to teaching and shepherding and guarding and counseling and caring for the church, you're not going to be very good. You're not going to be helpful. Because the depth that is needed there for discipleship isn't present in your family and it won't be present in the church. So kind of looking at all these characteristics, I know it's kind of coming hard, but we need to understand that this is a protection for us. This is a good for us because think about this. If we flip all of these characteristics around and if these were the characteristics of a pastor, an overseer must be of questionable character, unfaithful to his wife, not wise, not self-controlled, not respectable, inhospitable, unable to teach, a drunkard, violent, quarrelsome, a lover of money, not well thought of by outsiders. Is that who you want to be led by? (laughs) No, so there is this sense of challenge and rebuke here. There is this pushing on things, but when we think about the alternative, we're like, well, duh. Yes, it is important that we push on these things. It is important that we care about these things. It is important that men, we aspire to these characteristics. And this is also why we don't just lay hands on any man and let him become an elder. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul is going to say this, do not be hasty in laying hands on, or nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here's the point. We're not quick to be, make a man an elder. Why? Because if we're too quick to make a man an elder, we might miss something. Like a man has to show himself faithful. There is a slow process in this. Some guys can fake it pretty well. Some guys can hide sin pretty well. And so we want men to be tested. We want men to show themselves faithful. We want to see time given for men to show, yes, I am a man of godly character who disciples well, loves my family, leads my family. All these things are in place as best as we know. Yeah, we can't see a person's heart perfectly. 
Sometimes we will make bad decisions. Paul made bad decisions about who he put in eldership, but that's why he writes this to Timothy. Be careful, brother. And so church, we need to be careful as well. We need to see this process as slow and steady. And here's another way to think about it. If a man hasn't spent enough time with the church, with the church community and with church leadership that we don't know a particular sin struggle, we don't know his areas of weakness, then we don't well, know him well enough to make him an elder. Like if, you, if, if, there, if, if you as a church didn't know, if there weren't people in the church who, who didn't know my sin struggles, like if, if, if you were all like, I don't know how he struggles. I mean, he mentioned a few things from the pulpit, but I've never actually experienced him sinning against me. Then I have no business being your pastor. Because if you don't know me, then how can I lead you? How can you trust me? And we should see this as a beautiful thing because if you're aware of my sin struggles, if you know me in that way, then there's a way that you can lean in and help me and grow, help me to grow and disciple me. And so we want men who have been in the community long enough, who have stepped into relationship, who are trying to disciple, and we know, hey, yeah, they struggle with this area and this area and this area and this area, and this per- he sinned against me in this way, and he repented, and I saw forgiveness, and I saw growth in this. We want that dynamic in play. So we want to value the knowledge of sin struggle, not to play gotcha and judge each other, but so that we can walk with each other and disciple one another and encourage one another. And so men, let me ask this. In your aspiration, in your growth, are you seeking opportunities to lead where weakness and even sin gets exposed? Like, are you stretching yourself so that you can get called out? Or are you playing things close to the vest? Do you want people to press in and speak into areas of sin? Do you want to grow? Or do you want to just kind of perform for people so you can get the role and everybody acknowledge you and everybody kind of say, oh yeah, he's a good guy. We don't really know him, but he seems like a good guy. No, we should want to aspire to grow. We should want to aspire to live our lives in such a way that others can speak into and correct us and help us to grow. Paul and I are really working hard to build this kind of culture because it's scary and it isn't easy. Like we're working to embrace challenges and letting trial reveal our heart. Like we're confessing sin to one another and other people in the church. Like we want this to be a culture of eldership in our church. We want to experience grace from you. We want to experience grace from the Lord. And we need men who will live and lead in this way. Men who are aspirational for godliness, but patient with the process. Men who are willing to risk and allow others to speak into their lives so they can grow. Because leading this way, while it's hard and it's scary, is awesome. Like the amount of growth and grace that I've experienced living this way, because everything in me wants to hide. Trust me, this isn't just like easy. Yeah, here, here's all my junk. Like this is a temptation to hide. But doing it this way, God has worked in some pr- profound and powerful ways. And I want every man in this church to experience that. And I want every pastor in this church to experience that. And so that's how we want to engage the characteristics so I want to be very brief because we're running out of time here about what it looks like to follow pastors. I'm going to, I'm going to skim through this very quickly. First, here's what scripture says. Scripture says to honor your leaders because leading is hard. Like, this is going to kind of sound a little self-serving, this part. Hey, this is what it looks like to follow me. It's hard. You, you, you put a bullseye on your back when you step out and lead. And those of you that have been in leadership positions, you know that. And so scripture says, hey, honor your leaders, respect your leaders. As much as you are able, make leading for them joyful. Because if it's a joy to lead somebody, then it lightens the load a little bit. And so in the words of Jerry Maguire, help me help you. 
Like the way that you follow me and follow Paul is let us help you. Like help us to help you. And you do that by joyfully lead, uh, submitting to us, by receiving our teaching, receiving our correction, allowing us to disciple you, allowing us to equip you. So when you receive what we're called to do, then you honor and you help us. And so let me ask this question. How are you intentionally seeking discipleship from your pastors? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to meet with you one-on-one or Paul has to meet with you one-on-one. But are you receiving what you hear on Sundays? Are you receiving whenever you're in a context with us? Are you asking us for help? Are you asking us for advice in certain things? Are you seeking ways to grow in ways that we can kind of say, hey, why don't you run at this area? Are you engaging us proactively in ways that we can help and disciple you? Here's another way that the church shows honor. And this is in 1 Timothy 5, and I wouldn't bring it up unless it was in God's word. So uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the, the laborer deserves his wages. One of the ways you show honor to pastors is paying them. Self-serving, I know, man. <laughs> hey, you guys take care of Mindy and I very well, and I'm thankful for that. And so this is the really, this, isn't, this is less about me. I'm gonna, here's where I'm going to go with this. What this passage is saying, it's less about, hey, here's a man who wants to make a living as a pastor and wants to get paid being a pastor. It's more the church saying, hey, I want to pay that guy. Like the church recognizing this this particular man is gifted and I love the way he leads. And so we want to pay him so he can do this full time. And so it's the church's heart and desire to pay men. That's the posture. That's what Paul is talking about is, is the church should have this attitude of, hey, you only pay some guys. Now, not every pastor has to serve full-time. Not every pastor has to get paid. But some men feel called to full-time ministry, and the church should say, yeah, I want to pay that guy. And so so let me advocate for Pastor Paul, because he's not here this morning, so I don't have to embarrass him. But you all know you want to pay Pastor Paul, right? Like, Like, he's discipled most of you in this room. He's a very, very gifted dude, and I really want him on staff, and so I'm kind of like begging you here. But the point is, is that if we acknowledge a man like Paul who's like, yeah, we want to pay him to be our pastor, then this is what it means to give to the mission of God. This is where we go, hey, we should be giving. We, we, we should be able to sacrificially give and so a man can lead the church and to be healthy. And so church, let me just encourage you as you think about giving, this is part of giving to the mission of God is to say, hey, these, these are pastors, these are men, that their leadership is going to make the church thrive. I'm going to thrive on their leadership and I want to give so we can pay them. And then finally, the church submits and honors its elders by holding its leaders accountable. 1 Timothy 5, 19-22 says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Like, look, we can't have a system where one person with an agenda can take out an elder. And that's what Paul says here. But... You all are supposed to hold us accountable. Like, we need you to hold us accountable. We need you to bring correction. We need you to call us out when we're not doing things in a, in a wise and godly way. If we sin, because we will sin, you're coming and saying, hey, Pastor Chris, Pastor Paul, hey, you're sinning in this area, or hey, you missed something, or hey, why are you doing this particular thing? Like, we need you to hold us accountable. Do you believe that? Will you embrace that? Will you lean into that? Because that makes us better leaders. Like, I don't grow as a leader unless you correct me and call me out in certain ways. And so we need your accountability. We have processes by which we hold leaders accountable to protect the church. And that is on you guys. 
Like, like when Paul writes to the church at Galatia and calls them out for missing the gospel, he calls out the entire church, not just the elders. The entire church is responsible for what goes on. And so if we go sideways, if one of us goes off track, it's on you to call us. So please honor us in this way. Honor leaders in this way by holding us accountable. So as we conclude, let me just say this. Men, in a sermon like this, I know that there's a temptation to a couple things. One, fear. Like the fear that you feel about leading just kind of comes out, comes flying out. Like, man, I can't lead. Like, look at all these challenges. I see all my weakness. And that fear sets in and it keeps you passive. Hey, can I encourage you in the gospel? Can I encourage you to cast your cares on Christ? Can I encourage you to look to Jesus who has made every provision for you? Like if you belong to Christ, here's the wonderful truth. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Like the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and is empowering you to lead. And so you can take that fear, you can take all that sense of inadequacy and bring it to Christ and let the Spirit of God work through you. Some of you, you're, you're aware of how you failed and how you're a flawed leader. Like you look at your family and the ways you failed your family, you look at other leadership situations and the ways you failed. Can I remind you of the gospel and say this, hey, Jesus died for your failure. Jesus died for the ways that you have been aggressive or been passive, the ways you have wrecked things. His blood covers every sin. His blood covers every time you have been lustful and greedy. Like there is not a sin that Jesus has not covered. And so if you're a flawed or a failed leader, there's forgiveness for you. And you have the spirit of God and you can step into that God-given role, renewed and restored and empowered. And so don't let sin, don't let fear keep you on the sidelines. Men, let's aspire to godliness. Let's aspire to lead in the church. Men and women, church, first city, let's all of us aspire to godliness, aspire to lead, aspire to disciple, that we can build a culture of godliness that is reflected in our leadership. Amen?